0: Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the
1: Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. First and foremost, I have a cold... And my voice is a little bit lower. I'm trying super hard, but what can I say, I guess. For these next couple of days, whatever. My voice is low and scratchy. And there is no Dana, only Zool. So, you know what? This episode may feature some vocal fry. Try not to hijack the internet over it. Okay. Hello. How are you? You know what we never talk about that I realized this past week? The intro to this show. I was talking to a friend, someone who actually is one of the snippets in the intro to the show, and it occurred to me that I have never once explained who those people are or what their stories were about or what songs. Not that I, I thought I needed to. I'm pretty sure you get it. It's not high art, but I thought you might like a little behind the music story, music story. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. I thought you might like to know what's behind those. So here you go. The four excerpts in the intro to this show are from four separate soundtrack series stories. Valerie's My Mother's Name is Alexa Sotilli, and that was from her story about Valerie by Steve Winwood and her mother, who suffers from dementia. Then Rush is For White Suburban Boys is David Balutansky, and it's his story about listening to Tom Sawyer by Rush the entire summer of 1984 while he... Kept busy. And let's just call it and leave it at that. Anybody remember cassettes is the great Dan Charnas. You've heard me mention Dan on this podcast before. He had co-hosted the crazy awesome hip-hop soundtrack series that we did in November of 2013. And think about Dan that's really exciting. His book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop, was just optioned by BH1 for a TV movie called The Breaks. So I am sure we will be talking a ton about that in the coming year. But anyway, Anybody Remember Cassettes was from his first soundtrack series when he told his story about working with Rick Rubin and discovering and signing Sir Mix-a-Lot and basically being one of the people responsible for unleashing Baby Got Back on You, Me, The World. And finally, my tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids is Renika Reddick telling us all about this massive uterine fibroid that she had to have surgically removed, but how when she was convalescing and she was watching Beyonce sing Love on Top at the VMAs, it made her realize that her tumor was kind of like the Beyonce of fibroids in its drive and persistence and how it was pushing all her other organs out of the way. Beyonce really is everywhere. But anyway, I just thought you might like to know a bit about that intro. Especially if you are a new listener, and I know we have some new listeners now that we're with Infinite Guest and in American Public Media. So there you have it. And you know, I've been playing with the idea of switching those excerpts up and using some different ones from more recent shows, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite ready to part with these yet. I, I love them. I love them so much. And um, hey, you know what? Though, if you would like to hear any of those stories, Alexis's. David's, Dan's, or Renika's, but you can't find them in our archive because they are from a few years ago and I know sometimes that gets tricky, reach out to me. Either email stories at soundtrackseries.com or on Twitter at soundtrkseries and just let me know. They're great stories. I am happy to send them to you. Okay! So! Oh my god! It has been two weeks. We have so much to catch up on. Real quick, the last two weeks recap of stuff so we can consider ourselves caught up here. Number one, sharks are the new owls, I'm calling it. I give it three months before we start seeing shark print shower curtains and shark print throw pillows and googly-eyed macrame shark plant holders that you hang from your kitchen window. I just, this pot has been simmering for a while, I think. But I was certain of the shark trend about to go boom when I saw the Super Bowl halftime shark show, of course, which personally, I was pretty lukewarm on the whole Dancing sharks and shooting stars, the more you know, and the set from the video for Shiny Happy People, apparently. But then Missy Elliott appeared, and all was forgiven. Oh my God! Am I watching the 2001 VMAs all over again? I sure am! I can even pretend this nice Katy Perry girl is Nelly Furtado. It worked for me. Okay, second thing. You know what? Beck and Beyoncé are two totally different performers with two... Totally different skill sets. And you know what? I can't believe I'm actually stating something I would otherwise have thought was a totally obvious sentiment that was unnecessary to verbalize. But here I am doing it anyway. I have a question though. Why has no one turned it around? Okay, so it's like we've all seen the meme. You've seen somebody on your Facebook newsfeed post the meme that says, Beyonce has 27 writers and 19 producers and Beck has one writer and one producer and it's him. My question though is, how come we never see the flip of that that says something like, in one live performance, Beyonce had 343 turns, 260 hip slaps, 404 part berets, 73 worm-like full body movements in one pair of five-inch heels. And Beck had four jump up and downs six side steps, slide, run hand through hair, and 10 spins on his heels for one 360 degree rotation wearing a pair of cowboy boots. Why don't we ever see that flip? And I know what you're gonna say, and I get that album of the year, which is why this whole thing started, is more for writing and producing than performance. But it's just that this isn't the first time I personally have seen this kind of meme specifically questioning Beyonce's talent or implying she should be taken less seriously than Freddie Mercury or Beck or, I don't know, Mickey Dolan's, Because she doesn't do all of her own songwriting and producing. And believe me, this is coming from someone who basically likes but does not love Beyonce. It's awesome to see Beck win a Grammy, but I think we can do that without hollering about Beyonce being a total hack. So do a lady with a head cold a favor and enough of these bullshit memes. Because I know that, I mean, yeah, maybe the Grammy one has died out by now, but another one's going to come up. Posting or saying stuff like that, I'm sorry, kind of makes you sound old and crotchety. Though I'm about to be a total hypocrite on that because for real, where was Kanye when Coldplay's Parachutes beat out Bjork's Vespertine for Alternative Album of the Year in 2002? Because I could have totally used him then and only then. All right, number three, I am too sad about Jon Stewart to really get into it, other than to say I barely know life as an adult without Jon Stewart as the host of The Daily Show. That is sobering, and I'm heartbroken, and I'm still processing it all, but I will say that my suggestion for a new host, hear me out, RuPaul. I'm gonna let that land. Okay, finally, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it's the 30-year anniversary of the release of Breakfast Club, my favorite of the John Hughes movies. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a close second, tied with 16 Candles, also for second, and Christmas Vacation, a third second. Okay, how is this? Pretty much, I love all of them except Curly Sue. I also do not think this is a particularly unique opinion. Okay, anyway, February of 1985, Breakfast Club is released in theaters. They're releasing it again, and you and me and your best friend's older sister are totally jazzed. So before I go see it again, all big and high def, which, by the way, was a crazy way to see Back to the Future, again, which I did a couple of years ago. Large and in high definition. A movie that relies heavily on aging makeup like that one does. Ooh, in high def. It was like watching a middle school production of Death of a Salesman. That's what it was. Anyway, I wanted to look at the music in Breakfast Club again, because music in John Hughes movies across the board is amazing. And I would do this for the 30-year anniversary of any of them, again, except Curly Sue, because I've, I've Almost nothing to say about that soundtrack that includes you nobody till somebody loves you or the Star Spangled Banner. Except that I sang The Star Spangled Banner at my high school graduation, and believe me, the less said about it, the better. But come on, the parade in Ferris Bueller.
0: Shame, darling, Thank you for
1: the I Wanna Have Sex with Jake Ryan survey me. note passing scene in Sixteen Candles. The pool fantasy sequence in Christmas Vacation, which was written by John Hughes, so it totally counts.
0: And sure, don't you
1: forget about me at the end in Breakfast Club when Brian's voiceover reads the letter and Judd Nelson thrusts his fist in the air, which is incidentally the pose I hit every time someone taking a picture asks for a fun or wacky pose. So the music in Breakfast Club, so great. Fire in the Twilight for running down the halls. We Are Not Alone for the dance sequence in the library, even though kind of weird. I don't think that's what pot does to you at all. But as I've been gearing up for this re-release and looking back at the movie on a smaller screen, there are other not as obvious, though totally worth noting, music moments all over Breakfast Club. Number one, the album Allison is looking at during lunch. Princess, 1999. Number two, the super chilling I Don't Like Mondays, written on the cinder block wall during that opening montage where we see the flare gun that went off in Brian's locker and the call for prom queen votes. And then I Don't Like Mondays. Ooh, shivers. Number three, John Bender sings pretty much everything. He sings the guitar riff in Sunshine of Your Love. He sings I Want to Be an Airborne Ranger. Oh, and I have seen trivia all over the internet that states pretty definitely that before he runs through the hall singing I want to be an Iron ranger he also sings a few lines from Turning Japanese and I can't find that for whatever reason I don't know I thought I knew this movie like I know my own head of hair but maybe I don't or maybe this is just in a different part than where everybody says it is they say that he sings a little of Turning Japanese and then he launches into the other thing and then he goes into the gym he's going through two one, shooting the baskets oh my god where is this sequence of him singing a little of turning japanese if you know where it is in the movie can you please like cut it or whatever or send me a youtube clip because I'm going bananas not being able to find this and then also allison when everybody is talking about what it is they can do claire with the lipstick all that allison admits she can play heart and soul with her feet I would tell you as a point of interest that I can play heart and soul with my hands but that is not interesting because we all can and then finally, this.
0: And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They That's the Bowie quote
1: shown at the beginning do. of the movie that then breaks like glass, which I just read was suggested to John Hughes by Ali Sheedy. I'm not sure if she suggested the entire idea of putting a quote at the beginning of the movie or just that it should be this one. And if it was that she just suggested it be this one, I would love to know what he was considering before this one. Like, leave the gun, take the cannoli. So anyway, that's all I got for now. We covered a lot and I'm glad we got to catch up. And I'm I'm just really excited, especially that Breakfast Club is about to be Released. I love it when some art form, movies, books, TV, music get it right and show precisely how different we can be from one another or how trend or our superficial day to day can change. But teenage emotions are universal and forever. i got your picture.
0: I've a million of I want a to take a picture so I can look at you from inside as well.
1: You know what, though? Now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if. Because there's a part in Turning Japanese that goes, everyone around me is a total stranger, everyone avoids me like a cyclone ranger, everyone. I wonder if that sounds enough like, I want to be an airborne ranger that people heard that, that maybe he was only singing I Want to Be an Airborne Ranger, and but they heard this part of Turning Japanese, and so they thought he started with that and then went into this other song. Or maybe I'm not able to tell the difference. Maybe he did slip it in there, and I just can't hear the difference. I'm telling you, please send it to me if you find it. You can see how this is going to cost me sleep. All right. Our story for this episode is from a highly prolific writer and the author of the upcoming book, The Thousand Natural Shocks. Isaac Butler. Isaac tells us about Shop Around by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the unforgettable woman who introduced it to him.
0: Like the song you just heard, this is a story about love. And like the song you just heard, this is a story about learning life lessons from a middle-aged black woman. My grandparents were, amongst other things, jukebox collectors. They reserved two jukeboxes for their beach house, a broken one upstairs for show, and downstairs a gorgeous, fully functional Wurlitzer, complete with uh, 20 vintage 45s, a curved yellow and orange plastic shell, and janky carpeted speakers. During the summers, I would spend hours in front of the jukebox just pressing buttons, hypnotized by its totemic power as the twenty records shuffled back and forth, a shimmering caterpillar quivering with delight. And then I'd marvel as the metal selector arm would come to life, swooping down to pick the lucky winner, uh, Del Shannon's Runaway, for example, or Dion's The Wanderer, and place it on the turntable. I fixated on certain songs, playing them over and over again. In particular, The Beach Boys' 409 and my absolute, absolute favorite song when I was five, The Jamie's... Summertime. Now, for those of you who have never heard it, Summertime by the Jamies is, and I do not put this lightly, easily one of the ten worst things white people have ever done. I'm not saying it's top three, mind you, but it is definitely in the top ten. I know this now, just as I know that many of my understandings of the world when I was five are wrong. This is, I suppose, part of what it means to be an adult. Still at the time, I loved Summertime because of its high-pitched, close harmonies and because due to the jukebox's degraded speakers and overdriven gain levels, I misheard the lyrics and thought the song was about dinosaurs. Thus, (laughs) thus, are you coming or are you ain't became an archaeopteryx an egg. One day, I asked everyone in the house for their favorite songs on the jukebox. My dad picked Pretty Woman. Solid choice. My mom picked The Temptations My Girl. My older sister, presaging certain troubles with men she would have as an adult later in life, picked Leader of the Pack. Finally, I snuck in the kitchen to ask Hattie, my grandparents' housekeeper during the summers, what song was her favorite. Hattie Thompson. Daughter of a sharecropper. Escaped poverty by marrying an older Navy man and moving to Norfolk, Virginia, where she kept various people's houses, including, during the summer, the beach house of my grandparents, who in turn made their money from opening the first retail business in Richmond, Virginia with integrated bathrooms. I am only 35. This part of our history is that close. Hattie raised four kids and sent them to college. When I was a baby, they would come over and play with us. Her teenage daughters would hold me in the pool as I kicked and squealed. It was Hattie's choice I wanted to know more than anyone else's. You see, I loved Hattie. I loved her and I knew with the certainty of a five-year-old that she loved me too. She was like an aunt, I thought, like like an aunt who only took her meals in the kitchen. An aunt I knew almost nothing about, except for the most important thing, which was that she paid attention to me. The distance between us in age and race and class, that didn't matter because as a five-year-old with two black siblings and a family of Jewish leftists, I couldn't see that it existed. This is the love of children and, if we're not careful, the love of men. All self-absorption commingled with genuine affection so that it's unclear where one ends and the other begins. Willful ignorance of the difficult parts, those four letters of love stretched near to the breaking point. Hattie was polishing a sideboard, her hand spraying the wood down with pledge and wiping it up with a paper towel when I came up to her, interrupting her at work. Hattie, what's your favorite song on the jukebox? I asked. Oh, that's definitely Shop Around. What's that? I'll show you, Hattie said, taking my hand, smiling warmly, walking across the tiny brown diamonds of the living room carpet over to the jukebox. She pointed to song A-14. I pushed the faux mother of pearl button hard and took a step back, relishing the centipede, shuddering back and forth, the metal arm swinging to the record, the placement on the turntable, the needle drop. Hi, Iris. William Smokey Robinson first met Barry Gordy Jr. at a songwriting workshop in Gordy's converted two-family home in the black area of Detroit. Gordy already had a couple of minor hits under his belt, and Smokey brought with him a spiral notebook filled with 100 songs. He was 17 years old. Together, Smokey and BG, as his friends called him, would go on to build what by the mid-1960s was the largest and most profitable black enterprise to that point in American history. From 1960, when Smokey's shop around became Motown's first million seller, until 1970, Motown released 537 singles, two-thirds of which were hits. The big record labels, all of which released far more products, saw an average hit rate of 20%. Motown was built out of the songwriting genius of folks like Smokey and Holland Dozier Holland, combined with the exacting quality control of Barry Gordy, who was musically illiterate but knew how to make a hit. Gordy's standards were as relentless as they were rigorous. Songs needed to have traditional structure. They needed to not be too long. They needed to have a hook, a core magic special something that you wanted to hear again and again. Once the hook was discovered, it had to be foregrounded, repeated, and driven into your brain so that you were hungry, so hungry to hear it you just had to buy the record. But most importantly, Gordy felt that songs were best if they told a story. And in Shop Around, the story Smokey wrote for his group is this. A mother calls her son to her side and decides to give him some love advice. And the love advice is that women are like products in a store, and you should find yourself a bargain rather than marrying the first one you fall in love with, because love is a transient, temporary thing. Keep your freedom for as long as you can now. So it's not exactly the most romantic song in the world. In fact, It's probably the most practical song about love ever to sell more than a million copies, but it doesn't matter because shop around is a machine whose every part is fine-tuned for the delivery of joy. The intro deploys a trembling gospel tension like we're hearing Smokey testify. And then on the verse, the song opens up into a loping shoe-wop of guitar and upright bass marked with feminine rhymes built on the repetition of the word now. The bridge's melody somehow mimics the expressive speech of a woman delivering a life lesson over this traditional blues groove. Over that summer, Shop Around became, in my mind, a substitute for Hattie, or perhaps a substitute for my love for her. So at least once a day that year, if I saw her, I would walk to the jukebox and press A14 for her. And for years afterwards, the first time I saw her with the jukebox around, I would play it. I would play it, and what I would mean is, I remember. And what I would mean is, this is ours. What was it like to be Hattie hearing shop around for the first time? Would she been old enough to hear it in 1960? Did she, like Aretha Franklin hearing Sam Cooke on a car radio for the first time, ask whoever was driving to pull over so she could dance in her seat? Did she and her husband dance to this very unromantic song about romance as they courted? Did her kids grow up as I did with the love of Smokey and the Temptations and the Four Tops and Martha Reeves and the Supremes? I'll never know the answer to these questions. I can't ask Hattie because she died when I was in high school of causes unknown. And I can't ask her family because at their request, we did not attend her funeral. And there's been no contact between us since. I don't even know how old Hattie was when she died, so I cannot figure out how old she would have been when she first heard the song. After Hattie died and my grandfather died, my grandmother began the process of selling the beach house. Paintings began disappearing from the walls, furniture too. The sideboard that Hattie cleaned every day vanished into my older sister's dining room. We all gathered as a family at the house one last time, clustered toward the end of this massive dining table where my grandparents had hosted their extended family over the years for raucous meals and epic games of risk and trivial pursuit. The jukebox stood unplugged and silent in its corner. Being in this room without scratchy music playing felt almost sacrilegious. So I walked over to the Wurlitzer and reached around its back and plugged it in, surprised to discover it still worked. It still made its little clicks and clacks as it came to life. It it even lit up turning the white walls around it, orange and yellow and red. I pressed A14. The centipede shuddered. The metal arm swung. The needle dropped. There was this split second of crackle. And then Smokey's voice erupted from the speakers, the the words barely intelligible. Standing in front of the jukebox, just breathing, just listening. I saw out of the corner of my eye my grandmother reach over and touch my mother's arm and say something to her. My mother gently told me I needed to turn the jukebox off. It was about to be sold, you see. Records in it were valuable, but... Being vinyl, they depreciated every time they were played. I walked behind the jukebox and unplugged it, the music abruptly cutting off. I stood there with the power cord in my hand, thinking about Hattie and holding her hand as we crossed the diamonds of the living room carpet and the funeral we weren't invited to. You see, like many of us, I had been raised to believe that I was the hero of my own story. And for the first time I started to understand that I was actually a very minor and troublesome character in someone else's. Thank you.
1: Old, my one. The yes, I Isaac Butler. And you know, we had a jukebox in my house growing up, which is how I knew more about the catalog of Rupert Holmes than any four-year-old probably should. That's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, I wanted to ask you something. As I'm planning future episodes and people to approach, to ask, to tell stories... I wanted to know whose story about a song would you like to hear? It doesn't have to be a celebrity. It can be anyone that you think has a really great story to tell about music in their lives or someone you'd be curious to know how music has factored into their life. So let me know on Twitter at SoundTRKseries. And as always, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, right here where you found us and deep within your heart if you believe or something. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media.